1: This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody welcome. Hello and welcome to show 565. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Man, the cold has hit now. I thought we kind of somehow skipped a beat and entered into some alternate reality there because we have had the longest Indian summer it's just, I've still got tomatoes growing in me polytunnel. That's how good it is. But the snap's kicking in there now. Man, it's cool there now. Thermals on, girls and boys. Thermals on. Right then. Main fiction. Oh, I'm so proud we have got David Barr Kirtley on. Yes, an original published in Lightspeed Magazine story. How about that? And, and it's the end of the month. Mr. JJ Campanella magnificent, yes, thank you so much, before that, two big shout-outs to Julia Hammond, Julia, thank you so much, and James McDermott, huge gentlemen, ladies, oh, oh, there's, oh, there's the there's the wife, huge thank you to Perion for that, you know what I mean, big thank you, that's fantastic, just keep them with it, keep them with there. we are at 432, now, but it's, it's the end of the month, so we'll plummet for that next week. But anyway, it's huge, thank you. It means we can just go on and just carry on going. It's fantastic. So, i so excited about this man, David Bar Curley. Wow! So, the story is Veil of Ignorance. Like I say, it was originally published in Lightspeed Magazine. David Bar Curley is the host of... Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast on Wired.com for which he's interviewed well over 300 guests including Neil Gaiman, George R. R. Martin, Margaret Atwood, Richard Dawkins, Simon Pegg, Joyce Carol Oates, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Ursula K. Le Guin. His short fiction appears in magazines such as Realms of Fantasy, Weird Tales, Lightspeed and Intergalactic Medicine Show. On podcasts such as Escape Pod and Pseudopod and in books such as The Living Dead, New Cthulhu, The Way of the Wizard and New Voices in Science Fiction. His story, Save Me Please, was picked by editor Rich Horton for the 2008 edit edition of the anthology series Fantasy, The Best of the Year. Now this story we've had this young man on before. This story is narrated by Paul Cram. Paul Cram is an American actor who performs in the indie films and narrates short stories and the occasional audiobook as time allows. His latest film ruled is Tus- Tusculula. <laughs> is that how you pronounce it? Which has had him as a lovable mental patient Earl, which brought him alongside one of the women from the hit show Stranger Things. Keep an eye out for that film. Paul credits the library as a starting point for his acting career. So it's no surprise that he spends a lot of his time there. Still researching rules, but even more important to Paul is that since 2013, has been volunteering at his local library, reading with people who speak English as a second language. When not on a movie set, recording booth, or at the library, Paul can be found deep-frying chicken wings and cream cheese wontons with his older sister, or arguing about pop culture with his brother around one of the 10,000 lakes of Minnesota. You can find Paul online at www.paulcramactor.com So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present
2: Veil of Ignorance by David Kirtley Narrated by Paul Cram Something strange is happening to me. We're at Conrad's Vacation House a sprawling mansion that orbits the gas giant Hades Three. His father owns both the house and the planet. Conrad is in the living room watching sports. His girlfriend Alyssa is standing by the mirror in the bathroom fixing her hair. Her friend Kat is sitting near the bay windows, watching the stars and the roiling vermilion clouds on the world below. Dylan is in the kitchen mixing drinks. Brad is slouched on the sofa, watching everyone with a lazy smile. And I don't know which of them I am. Perception shifts. A few moments of Alyssa. Running my fingers through silky hair. A moment of Dylan. Using my knife to slice limes for the drinks. A moment of Cat. Feeling awe of those looming bands of color. Of those constantly churning swirls that look so majestic and make me feel so insignificant. Then Conrad. Pride at my team's success, at my father's wealth. Then, Brad. I feel quite smug. It's starting to work, I tell them. You can all feel it, can't you? Dylan comes in from the kitchen with the drinks. I hand one of them to Conrad, who thanks me, and one to Kat, who takes it silently. Feel what? I ask. Brad gestures to the smoldering bowl at the center of the coffee table, at the calypsarian pipe, and whatever that shit was we've all been smoking. Something very strange is happening to me, Kat says. Brad ignores her. You see, I had this idea a few weeks ago. Dylan and I were talking politics, and he brings up this thing about Rawls. Conrad sighs and orders the computer to take a break. I want to watch the end of the game, but this is starting to feel really weird. Alyssa comes out of the bathroom, looking gorgeous, as always. I sit down on the couch next to Conrad. What's going on, Brad? I ask. What was that stuff you gave us? Just sit and listen, Brad says. All will become clear. Conrad turns to Dylan. Who's Rawls? John Rawls, I explain, puzzled about where this is going. Twentieth century, he tried to revive the social contract theory, which states that the only fair laws are those that everyone can agree to. Whatever, Alyssa tosses her hair. Someone give me another drink. Conrad holds up a hand to her. Quiet, I say. I want to hear this. Dylan shrugs and keeps going the problem with the social contract is that people don't agree. Slave owners think that slavery is fair. Slaves don't. So Rawls envisions a hypothetical situation in which the two of them don't know who is who. Put behind this veil of ignorance, neither would support slavery, knowing that he himself might be the slave. I start to see where this is going and finish. Once self-interest is canceled out, It turns out that they agree on principle. Cad interrupts. Brad, will you cut this shit and tell us what's going on? I say. "Uh, Why can't I tell who I am? Then Dylan starts to answer my question in that patronizing tone of his. Don't you see? He says. We've been put behind a veil of ignorance ourselves. Very good. Brad nods at him. A few weeks ago, I was hanging out with this calypsarian dealer on Far Guard Point. Alyssa frowns. Which ones are they? I ask softly. Calypsarians? The purple ones, Kat says. From Harupele? With the tentacles? Three yellow eyes? Oh, yeah, I say. Conrad elbows me. Quiet. And we were totally trashed. Talking politics, philosophy, metaphysics, etc., etc. And I start telling it about this veil of ignorance idea. And it says it's got some stuff that we can do that. So it tells me. Why? Dylan asks. My word hangs there. Alone in the silence for a few moments. Well, look, Brad says. This group, this band of friends if that's what you want to call us, is broken. We all know it, but no one wants to say it. Well, I said it. He levels his finger at Conrad. Conrad treats his girlfriend like shit. He treats Dylan like shit. Well, that is unless Dylan starts picking on one of the girls, in which case Conrad gangs up with him. And, of course, he finishes, everyone treats me like shit all the time. Conrad does not treat me like shit. Alyssa says, offended. Quiet, he tells her. I thought this might clear the air, Brad says. Behind our very own veil of ignorance, some of us may reach a new consensus on how we ought to be treating each other. Alyssa says, I don't like this. I don't like having someone else controlling my body, even for a moment. I feel violated. No one else is controlling your body. Brad sighs. That's not how it works. The drug creates localized telepathy with scrambled ego. Alyssa's brain is still controlling Alyssa's body, Alyssa's thoughts. To the extent she has any, Dylan interjects, are still her own. The only difference is now everyone experiences everyone's thoughts, and no one knows which set of thoughts is his own. Cat crosses her arms. I don't want to share my thoughts. Brad shrugs. Too late, I say. Don't do drugs. Conrad gets to his feet. He looks pissed off. I think Brad needs to have his ass kicked for pulling this little stunt. No, Dylan says. Think about it. Our identities are all mixed together. If Conrad hits Brad, we all feel it equally. What's the point of that? Hmm. Conrad thinks for a moment, then says, So we just wait until the drug wears off, then hit him. Cat glances at him. What if you're Brad? I ask. That stops him. And that's really the point, isn't it? There are five sets of consciousness here, but none of us knows which personality belongs to us. When the drug wears off, I'll be one of these people. But who? Right now I'm Kat. The boys don't like me. They think I'm weird because I wear black and have my own ideas. They only let me hang around because I'm friends with Alyssa. She's more their type. Pretty and popular and... I'm sorry to say it because she is my friend. Vapid. She doesn't even notice when they make fun of her. Still, she's pretty, and looks are all that matter when you're a girl. Am I a girl? If so, let me be Alyssa, not Cat. I don't want to be Cat. I'm starting to get a headache, Brad says. I can feel it coming on. Conrad grunts. Good. Dylan nods. Yeah, seriously, Brad? He says, You have no right to be complaining about anything right now. Brad looks sullen. I get really bad headaches. We know, Conrad sighs. We've heard. He gets up from the couch and paces around the living room. He wheels on Brad. See? This is why you get picked on. This is why no one likes you. You're weak. You whine all the time. You're a. He turns to Dylan what? A hypochondriac? Dylan offers. Yes, Conrad says, pointing. Thank you. A hypochondriac. We all get headaches, Brad. We deal with them. For you, it's like the end of the world. Well, you'll see, Brad says angrily. Tonight, you'll all feel what my headaches are like, and I'm used to it. You're not. Conrad shakes his head. Whatever. I'm so intimidated truth is i'm sick of brad and his goddamn attitude he thinks he's so clever trying to make us feel sorry for him well i didn't start this game but i can choose to play it my way let's have some fun with this i walk over to Alyssa, take her hand and pull her to her feet come on upstairs i tell her i want to show you something Alyssa hesitates i know what he's thinking i guess we all do because this drug is mixing our thoughts together. But even without the drug, I would still know, because he's got that look. Come on, he repeats, and pulls me along after him toward the stairs. Brad scowls. I should have known. Conrad likes to do her so that we can all hear her moaning, just to let everyone know who she belongs to. Now we'll do a lot more than hear them. Tonight I offer them a chance to get outside themselves, to comprehend our sad situation, to m- make a new start. And all he can see is a new opportunity to show us up. I glance at Dylan, who's grinning. What are you so thrilled about? He's really going to do it, Dylan says. We're all going to. I've always wanted to, and don't tell me you haven't. Cat looks weak and pale and scared. I am scared. I say nothing. No, Brad says. She's an imbecile. I don't find that attractive. Liar, Dylan answers. Everyone wants her. I glance at Cat. What? No wry observations this time, Cat. I laugh. Well, this is pretty fucked up, I say. I don't remember anything like this in Rawls, even as I say it. I experience a twinge of self-loathing. I am such an ass. So cocky. So sarcastic. Why do I act this way? Because I know that as long as someone else is the butt of the joke, it won't be me. How pathetic. For a moment, I feel an overwhelming sense of shame. But then I remember I'm not Dylan. At least, probably not. Or maybe I am. I don't want to be Dylan. Conrad lies in bed, among tangled sheets. I always hate myself afterward. My thoughts are terribly lucid, unclouded by the distractions of desire and drink and noise. It's in these moments that I can't escape the truth. My friends are losers. I despise my girlfriend. I stay with her because she's hot. And I hate myself for being so superficial. I'm rich. And I'm good looking. And athletic. And successful. I've had every advantage. So why can't I do better than this? Than these people? At least the sex was good. That's what I used to think. But tonight? My thoughts kept getting mixed with hers. I was her. And I felt nothing but boredom. Frustration. A straining to achieve some pleasure before it was over. And it was over too soon. That's Brad's fault, I tell myself. Him and his goddamn headache. I feel it in those moments when I'm him. And how are you supposed to perform with a headache like that? Now I have to go back downstairs and face them. They all know. What a miserable night this has turned out to be for Conrad. For me... I hope I'm not, Conrad. I look at Alyssa and know that she knows these thoughts. I don't care. Alyssa slips angrily from the bed and starts getting dressed. I almost fall over yanking on my panties. I'm so mad. What a shithead! What a goddamn asshole! I only stay with you because you buy me things, I tell him over my shoulder. At least I didn't have to fake it this time. I dress in the dark. By the time I've got my clothes on, my mind is made up. I'm dumping him. If I'm Alyssa, I'm definitely dumping him. I mean it this time. But what if I'm not Alyssa? What if I'm Conrad? In that case, maybe I shouldn't dump him. Or or rather, Alyssa shouldn't. God, my head hurts to think like this. The truth is, they're both really sad people. I don't want to be either one of them. And I realized then that I don't want to be any of these people. Not Conrad, who's arrogant, or Alyssa, who's dumb, or Kat, who's weird, or Dylan, who's sarcastic, or Brad, who's whiny. Is this how people felt in Rawls' thought experiment? When they were floating free for a time, divorced from the tyranny of identity? Maybe they would choose never to go back. Pure consciousness is an amazing thing, but actual personalities are always broken and unpleasant. It's not fair that our thoughts should be imprisoned in identities. I start to dread the moment when this wonderful and terrible drug I purchased will begin to fade, and I'll be trapped as one of these people. Now I realize that I have been lost in reverie, and my thoughts have grown too profound to be Alyssa's. Sure enough, I'm Brad again. I glance up as Conrad and Alyssa troop miserably down the stairs. My headaches don't start out that bad, but then they get worse. A Pressure is building along my hairline. Then it starts to squeeze, like someone's wrapped a rope around my brow and is twisting it tighter and tighter. The pain starts to pulse, ranging from bad too unbearable. There's quick, stabbing pain if I move my head and constant nausea. For a moment, I'm Alyssa, and the pain is gone, but I know it'll be back any moment. Conrad tells Brad, take some pills. It won't do any good, Brad says. It never does. Take them, Conrad barks. Brad shrugs. I wander over into the bathroom pain like hammer blows falling on my temples. I rummage through the medicine cabinet, find some pills, and swallow them. I return to the living room. We've got to make this stop, Conrad says. Dylan nods in agreement. Hey, Brad, I say. When is this headache going to wear off? By morning, he replies. Conrad is incredulous. By morning? No way. There's got to be something we can do. The telepathy must have a maximum range, Kat says quietly. The field, it can't stretch forever. Conrad nods. Right, so let's just hop on the yacht and leave him here. You can't, Brad says. I ordered the yacht to do a tune-up. It won't be ready to fly until tomorrow. Conrad takes three quick steps and shoves Brad hard. What the hell did you do that for? Brad stumbles, recovers his balance. No one's running away. Not tonight. What's the matter, Conrad? Hmm? Don't like being me? Or Kat? Or Alyssa? Welcome to the club. Conrad turns away. He starts to pace furiously. Don't you see? Brad is almost shouting now. We have a chance here tonight. We can agree on how each of us should be treated and be bound by that commitment. That's the beauty of the veil of ignorance. For example, we know that Brad really does get terrible headaches. Pain that the rest of the group, until tonight, couldn't even imagine. So let's agree to be more sympathetic. Remember, any of you might be Brad. There are a few moments of awkward silence. Everyone exchanges sideways glances. Conrad shakes his head. Screw Brad, I announce. He's an asshole, and Conrad is going to kick his ass when this is over. And Brad deserves it. Even if I'm Brad, I don't care. He still deserves it. I pause. I don't think I am, though. How could I be him? No way. Cat rolls her eyes. You have no way of knowing, I say. You're being irrational. And even if you are Conrad, Brad adds, You might still want to listen. He looks at each of us in turn. We've all learned some things tonight about Conrad. He's going to get a lot of shit for that. Unless we all agree right now to go easy on him. Conrad glares at Brad with absolute fury. Dylan backs out of the way. Strangely enough, in this tense moment, I start thinking about Rawls again about some of the critiques of his theory. Rawls believed that people subjected to a veil of ignorance would do the rational thing, agree to a society that's fair to everyone. That's what Brad thought too. But maybe they wouldn't. Maybe people would set up things like slavery because each person would simply gamble that he'll be the owner and not the slave. It's not the rational thing to do, but people are often not rational. An idea that's foremost in my thoughts as I watch the crazed expression coming over Conrad. Over me. The pain of Brad's headache is driving me absolutely insane. Brad is driving me absolutely insane. I want it to stop. I want him to stop. Anything to make it stop. But Brad's just standing there with his smug grin. I told you my headaches were bad, but you wouldn't listen. You never listen to me because you're a spoiled asshole. But now you see I'm right. Who's weak now, huh? Who's the one who can't take it? I lunge for him. Don't you come to my house and talk to me like that. I punch Brad, who goes down and I fall on top of him and start slamming his shoulders against the floor. Then my fingers find Brad's throat and start to choke him. If he's unconscious, I announce furiously, then we won't have to feel his headache or his weakness or his goddamn resentment. Alyssa starts screaming. Cat leaps forward and tries to drag Conrad off, but he's too big. Stop it! I yell at him. You're going to kill him! Dylan stands by doing nothing. He's frozen, just contemplating the theoretical implications of this strangling. Conrad's grip tightens. I'm squeezing. I hear Kat's words and realize that she's right. I am going to kill him. It has this awful sense of inevitability because I hate him so much. Despise him. I have no choice. But it's not really me doing it, is it? At least, probably, it's not. Brad's thrashing is growing weaker. And now everything is going dark and numb, like my head's being dipped in ice water. I can't see. I hardly notice the pain in my neck anymore. I know I'm going to die, and I don't want to die. I mean, I really, really don't want to die here on this floor. But then I realize that it's not me that's dying. Brad is dying. And I'm not him. At least I'm probably not. Or maybe I am. I don't want to be Brad. I'm screaming. Because I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm Brad and I'm dead. I felt it that moment when life stopped, that instant when it ended. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. I'm screaming. I can't be dead if I'm screaming, and, and three other people are screaming too. Conrad is screaming, and Dylan is screaming, and Kat is screaming. And I look down at my body and see that I'm Melissa. No, I'm Conrad now, and I make myself stop screaming. Stop it. Just stop. I make myself look at Brad. He's on his back, arms splayed, legs splayed. I can't see his face. His head is turned away and I see as a mess of dark, curly hair. But now, I'm Cat. And now, I can see his face. Oh, God. His eyes are open. They're staring. I throw a hand over my mouth and turn away. Conrad pivots, stomps a few steps, circles back. Then, I am Conrad, and my life is over. Ruined. How could this happen? How could this possibly happen? Brad's headache ended along with his life and now my thoughts are clear and sharp and cold. Very, very cold. Alyssa's palms are pressed against her temples. You killed him! I shout. Cat moves toward the computer. I'm calling for help. Conrad shouts. No! Dylan holds out a hand. Wait! Cat comes to a stop. Watching, guarded. Let me think a second. Dylan starts to pace. I'm Alyssa, waiting. Then Conrad waiting. And then Cat, when he says, We've got to cover it up. No, I tell him. Think, Cat, Dylan says softly. What if you're Conrad? Then I'll pay the price. But. Even as I say it, I feel a twinge of doubt. What if I really am Conrad? I try to imagine what it would be like if the drug finally wore off, and I looked down and saw Conrad's body. My body? Maybe? Standing alone? I can't. I can't. It's too much. Alyssa fidgets. What are we going to do? I ask. Cover it up. Dylan explains. He takes a deep breath. It's the only thing that makes sense. Any one of us might be Conrad. So we all swear right now never to tell anybody. No one knows Brad was here. We dispose of the body, and for all anyone knows, he was eaten by one of those calypsarian scumbags he always hung out with. Conrad steps forward. Anyway, it would serve him right if that had happened. I say awkwardly. This whole thing was his fault. It's the drug that did it all. What was he thinking? Slipping us some fucked up alien drug. Dylan turns and gazes at Kat. Come on, I prod her. It's the only way. I know she'll break. I was just her a second ago. She can't go to jail. She won't. All right, she whispers in a hollow voice. Alyssa agrees, too. Okay, I say. Okay, let's do that. Conrad nods. I'll load him onto my yacht. As soon as it's ready to fly, we swing into a low orbit and launch the body down into Hades 3. It won't last a second down there. Fine, Dylan says. Go do it. Conrad takes Brad's body under the armpits and starts to drag. Cat wanders over to the window again and looks down at the planet. I used to think it was so amazing, so awe-inspiring. Now I look at those red bands and feel only horror. I can't look away. I know that for the rest of my life I'm going to remember this sight, and remember Brad, and be afraid. I'll turn Conrad in. Whatever I say now, whatever I promise, it's a lie. If the drug wears off, and I'm not Conrad, I'll turn him in. I have to. But what if I am Conrad? Then I can't trust Cat. Then I'll have to do something about Cat. Conrad stops. He tosses Brad's body aside. Dylan stands totally still. They're both staring at me. Dylan sighs. So much for that plan. We can't trust Cat not to talk. I should know. I was just her. Get rid of her, too, Conrad grumbles. It's the first thing to pop into my head, but even before it's out of my mouth, I realize the problem, which Dylan kindly points out. What if you're cat? He says. I groan. So what do we do? Dylan thinks for a minute. I have an idea, he says. Then I am Dylan, and it's my idea. A terrible... Terrible idea, but it's the only thing I can think of. We wait for a Calypsarian dealer that Conrad knows. I'm Conrad, and Alyssa, and Dylan, and Cat, and Conrad, and Alyssa, and Dylan, and Cat. No one says anything. It seems to go on forever. It will go on forever. The Calypsarian docks its yacht. I'm Cat when it enters the room. It's taller than any of us, sinuous, and it smells like an ozone sea. I've never seen one whose mottled tentacles were such a dark shade of purple, or whose three eyes blazed such a bright and terrible yellow. It regards us. Conrad shows it the pipe. We want more of this, I demand. The calypsarian snatches the pipe and examines it. Enough to last a decade, Dylan adds. Enough to last forever if we need it to. The calypsarian is very accommodating. Tell your friends, it rasps. Plenty to go around. Enough for every last human if they want it. After the calypsarian leaves, Dylan offers the pipe to Kat. There's enough in here to keep us going for weeks. She hesitates. Dylan scowls. Take it, Cat. Otherwise, it's a one in four chance of being Conrad. Only you and only Conrad. Your choice. Cat takes the pipe. I smoke it. So do the others. Now, I'll never betray Conrad. I might be him. It occurs to me later, when I'm Dylan, that maybe Brad succeeded. In some sick way. Cat or Dylan or Alyssa would have turned in Conrad in a second. But behind the veil of ignorance, we all agreed to help him out. And we always will. It's too bad Brad isn't around to see it. I'm glad I wasn't him, at least. Sometimes I wonder who I am. Not that it matters.
1: Not anymore. And there you go. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. David Bar curtley David, sir, it has been an honour. Yes, we've we we we've all, we've all seen the kind of fly away from the kind of the mothership there now. We haven't seen each other for ages on the kind of interwebs, but David was a, a keen... And oh, when we used to have sofa notes, David and John Joseph Adams was the team the team you had to beat in our little quiz on science fiction. No one could rock them and they are still the champions of the quiz. And Paul, Paul, thank you so much, man. Honestly, I know I'd like to say time and everything like that, but hey, trust us. That's the old heart I'm hitting there from the bottom of your heart. Thank you so much. Tell your sis I'm coming over for the chicken wings and the cream wandons. That's for me. So, ho Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news. Jim, sir.
3: Greetings and turn bibulations, my endophatically quaretic listeners. And welcome to this November 2018 science news update. I'm your host for this confusingly abstemious science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. So, I have it easy this month for Idiot Scientist of the Month. Every year at this time, the Ignoble Awards are given out at about the same time as the Nobel Prizes. As usual, these awards, though they may seem utterly idiotic at first, often make you think just a little bit that they are not... Quite the utter madness that they appear to be. And please note, just like the Nobel Prizes, the Ig Nobel Awards cover decades of research time in terms of where the winners are chosen from. First up, the prize in medicine. Doctors Mark Mitchell and David Weingartner got the award for using roller coaster rides to try to hasten the passage of kidney stones. The title of their work is Validation of a Functional Paiello-Kaleocele Renal Model for the Evaluation of Renal Calculi Passage While Riding a Roller Coaster. That's from October 2016. Next up, anthropology. Dr. Thomas Person and his group got the award for collecting evidence in a zoo that chimpanzees imitate humans about as often, and about as well, as humans imitate chimpanzees. Title, Spontaneous Cross-Species Imitation in Interaction Between Chimpanzees and Zoo Visitors. And that's from 2018. Number three, the biology prize goes to Dr. Paul Beecher and his group for demonstrating that wine experts can reliably identify by smell Ew, the presence of a single fly in a glass of wine. I'm not entirely sure what the point of that is. I guess it just shows that wine experts have really, really good noses. And the title of this was The Scent of a Fly. And that's from 2017. Number four, the chemistry prize goes to Dr. Paula Romeo and her group for measuring the degree to which human saliva is a good cleaning agent on dirty surfaces. Again, ew. Um. Well, and the title of this, oddly enough, is Human Saliva as a Cleaning Agent for Dirty Surfaces. And that was published in 1990. Wow. In the journal Studies in Conservation. I I, I looked at the abstract for this, and the idea was is that People for centuries have been cleaning things with saliva, so why not actually test just how well saliva works? Number five, the medical education prize goes to Dr. Akira Horiuchi for the medical report, Colonoscopy in the Sitting Position. Lessons learned from self-colonoscopy. And once again, this is really... For those of you who have had colonoscopies, imagine doing it to yourself. I can't even imagine being awake for a colonoscopy, mind you. Anyway, colonoscopy, the title is Colonoscopy in the Sitting Position. Lessons learned from self-colonoscopy by using a small caliber variable stiffness colonoscope. Mm, That's from 2006. Number five, the Literature Prize goes to Dr. Thea Blackler and her group, for documenting that most people who use complicated products do not read the instruction manual. This is actually pretty good because I probably don't do that myself. The title of this was, Life is Too Short to Read the Instruction Manual, How Users Relate to Documentation and Excess Features in Consumer Products. That came out of the journal Interacting with Computers in 2014. Number seven, the Nutrition Prize goes to James Cole for calculating the caloric intake from a human cannibalism diet and that it's significantly lower than the caloric intake for most other traditional meat diets. Okay, I, I guess the idea was to show that eating humans is really healthy. I don't understand that. Okay. The title of this was Assessing the Caloric Significance of Episodes of Human Cannibalism in the Paleolithic Period. Sure. Uh, that came out in Scientific Reports in 2017. Number eight, the Ignimal Peace Prize goes to Dr. Francesco Alonzo and his group for measuring the frequency, motivation, and effects of shouting and cursing while driving an automobile. Yeah, he has to come to Jersey sometime. Okay, and the reference for this was Shouting and Cursing While Driving, Frequency, Reasons, Perceived Risks, and Punishments. And that came out in 2017 in the Journal of Sociology and Anthropology. Number nine, Reproductive Medicine Prize goes to Dr. John Barry and his group for using postage stamps to test whether the male sexual organ is functioning properly. I'm not even sure I want to know the details of that. title of this was Nocturnal Penile Tumescence Monitoring with Stamps, and that came out in 1980 in Neurology. And finally, the Economics Prize goes to Dr. Lindy Hanyu Liang and her group for investigating whether it is effective for employees to use voodoo dolls to retaliate against their abusive bosses. And the title of this was Righting a Wrong, Retaliation on a Voodoo Doll Symbolizing an Abusive Supervisor Restores Justice. That's relatively recent, too. Uh, it came out in Leadership Quarterly in February 2018. Wow. Okay. The first actual story of the night. Coffee has now been shown to be good for you, but is hot-brewed coffee better for you than cold-brewed? And the answer appears to be yes. Doctors Nina Rao and Megan Fuller of Thomas Jefferson University found that your cold brew coffee is not as healthy as hot coffee. That does not mean that cold coffee is unhealthy, just less healthy. Hot-brewed coffee has higher levels of antioxidants, which are believed to be responsible for some of the health benefits of coffee. Uh, The two researchers found that the pH levels of both hot and cold coffee were similar, ranging from about 4.85 to about 5.13 for all the coffee samples tested. Coffee companies and lifestyle blogs have tended to tout cold-brewed coffee as being less acidic than hot coffee. I've read those myself, and... I thought that was the truth, but it seems that it's not. And they basically said that it was less likely to cause heartburn or gastrointestinal problems because it was less acidic. And again, i believed this myself for the last couple of years, but apparently eh, it's not true. Fuller and Rao found that the hot-brewed coffee method had more total titratable acids, which may be responsible for the hot cup's higher antioxidant levels. Fuller said, quote, coffee has a lot of antioxidants. If you drink it in moderation, our research shows it can be pretty good for you. We found the hot brew has more antioxidant capacity, unquote. Next story. Now, it's always been my belief, whether I'm watching a real horse or cartoon horse, actually, for that matter, maybe that's where I learned it, the cartoons, that a horse's tail is swishing in order to knock flies out of the air. It turns out that since a horse can't really aim its tail, it can't really hit flies out of the air. It also turns out that tail swishing in mammals is both more complex and sort of more simple in terms of animal-fly interactions than we ever thought. Dr. Marguerite Mathairn from Georgia Tech University published a paper last month in the Journal of Experimental Biology. But states, as the purpose of her work, that, like me, quote, most people assume that horses and other mammals swing their tails as some kind of a deterrent for bugs, and we wanted to provide scientific evidence for this claim, unquote. So she traveled to the stables, where she had written regularly as an undergraduate, and she filmed horses there swishing their tails while under fly attack. For comparison, she also visited the Atlanta Zoo to film the rear ends of animals, ranging from giraffes and zebras to elephants. and she digitized the movements of each animal's tail and then calculated the natural frequencies at which the tails should swing. And she was surprised. The animals were swinging their tails three times faster than she had expected and using almost 30 times more energy. She wondered, however whether they were swinging their tails to intercept more insects. Uh, But the problem was even that at uh, top speed, which is about 0.35 meters per second for the tip of a horse's tail, they could only intercept about one insect every 90 seconds or so. However, she went out and purchased a horsehair whip, and she was surprised to see that mosquitoes take flight even when the whip just merely whistled past. So, were the tails generating a breeze that were sufficient to repel potential bloodsuckers? The answer was yes. She constructed a robot tail built from a strip of black plastic attached to a fan motor, and she filmed the effects as mosquitoes flew nearby. And she compared the number of insects that failed to land on the flat ceiling above the spinning fake tail With the number where the tail was static, the robots successfully deterred about 50% of all the pests. In addition, the approaching insects seemed unaware of the model until they were close enough to feel the one meter per second breeze generated by it, and then they veered away. So horses and other animals are not simply batting away flies. They are providing a breeze that deters the flies from coming near. Next story. How honest is your male dog? Well, the answer is, if he's a smaller kind of dog, then he's probably pretty dishonest. Why? Well, I've always had cats, since I'm too lazy to walk a dog or clean up after it in public. But it never occurred to me that a male dog might try to alter the height of his pee marking to make himself look bigger. Well, even though I never thought of it, Dr. Betty McGuire and her team at Cornell University endeavored to get to the bottom of this canine dishonesty once and for all. So, the actual dishonesty in question has to do with scent marking. Scent can convey, well, all sorts of information, sex, age, health, kinship, individual identity, and social or reproductive status. As such, scent marking is a common way for animals to transmit information about themselves into the future for other individuals to receive. And we've seen this all before, usually in the form of dogs peeing, that is, transmitting, or sniffing, that is, receiving neighborhood infrastructure. And interestingly, when dogs do this, the information they transmit or receive is conveyed not only in the scent signal itself, but also the space it occupies. A scent located high up on a lamppost signifies that a big dog is walking those streets. For male dogs, this potentially wards off rival males while simultaneously attracting curious females. Knowing this, the Cordell team hypothesized that adult male dogs embellish their height when urine marking, predicting that small dogs aim higher up the post than large male dogs. To test this, the team first investigated whether Raised leg angle is indeed a proxy for urine height mark, and it turns out it is. Researchers found that the angle between a dog's raised leg and the axis perpendicular to the ground was pretty much correlated with the height of the urine mark in similarly sized dogs. In fact, that raised leg angle was the best predictor of any proxy that they could investigate. So after they confirmed that that raised leg angle was used, uh, McGuire and her team got to the meat of it. Do small dogs raise their legs higher? Was the angle higher than large dogs? And the answer is yes. The findings reveal that the smaller the dog, the higher the raised leg angle. This implies not only that urine marking can be dishonest, but also that small male dogs do what they can do to appear more intimidating and or alluring than they actually are. In other words... Yes, male dogs lie. Next story. From time to time, I write an exam or a test or a quiz, especially in genetics, in which I will make up an unlikely animal that does not exist in order to explore certain genetic or evolutionary points. I have had exams that have featured vampire cats, three-legged carpovores, schmooze. Okay, schmooze aren't my own luminous carnivorous kreplocks, and the rare tree-climbing kangaroo. Okay, now none of these exist, except in the imagination. Except for the tree-climbing kangaroo. Apparently, I actually stumbled upon something completely by accident that lives on our great planet, and it's even rarer than I explained on my genetics quiz. The Wondiwoi tree kangaroo is so rare and elusive, it disappeared over 90 years ago and was assumed to be extinct. Not that I even knew it ever existed, mind you. Now it has not only been spotted, but also photographed for the first time ever, unlike Bigfoot and Chupacabra, which still remain at large. I knew I took that class in cryptozoology years ago for some reason. Why didn't my professor ever mention this creature, though? We talked plenty about Bigfoot. Talked about Loch Ness Monster. Never talked about tree-climbing kangaroos. Anyway, this unusual monkey-like kangaroo clambers through the trees of the montane forests of New Guinea. It had been seen there only once before by Western scientists in 1928. The Wandiwoi tree kangaroo had not been collected, seen, or reported since that first sighting. And as I demonstrate... This Kanga is one of the most poorly known mammals in the world. Now an amateur botanist from the UK has led an expedition into near-impenetrable bamboo forests 5,000 feet high in the remote Wondiwoi Mountains of West Papua, Indonesia, to find it. Michael Smith, any relation, Tony? He's an amateur botanist from Farmham, England. And he says, quote, Just showing that it still exists, it's amazing. It's such a remote and difficult spot to access, I was uncertain we would ever really know, unquote. Now, tree kangaroos are tropical marsupials that are close relatives of the ground-dwelling kangaroos and wallabies. And these medium-sized kangaroos have muscly forearms to pull themselves up the trunks of trees and move around the branches using a strange mix of climbing and hopping. Again, absolutely unbelievable. Despite being little known to the world at large, they are surprisingly diverse. There are 17 species and subspecies, two in the far north of Australia, and the remainder on the huge island of New Guinea. And again, I didn't even realize that uh, this was a group. So Smith led the expedition to find this rare species. He trained as a biologist as an undergraduate at university, And now works for a medical communications company, but he spends vacations trekking to remote parts of the world, Pakistan, Kurdistan, and Indonesia on the hunt for things like rare orcas, rhododendrons, and tulips. He hatched the expedition plan after hearing about this mysterious animal while scouring West Papuan mountains for rhododendrons in 2017. With the aid of four Papuan porters, and a local hunter acting as a guide, Smith trekked into the jungle on July 23, 2018, and emerged a week later with news of the find. Despite weighing up to 35 pounds, these tree kangaroos are remarkably cryptic, often remaining totally hidden high up in the forest canopy. On one of the final days of the expedition, having no luck having spotted one, the crew started to head down. Smith says, quote, that was when our hunters spotted a kangaroo 30 meters up. After a lot of scrambling around, trying to get my lens to focus on the animal peeking out from behind the leaves, I got a few half-decent shots. Unquote. Lending to the credibility of the find, the Wundiwoi Mountains are also hundreds of miles away from suitable high-altitude habitat for related kangaroos. The Wondiwoi tree kangaroo has a very limited distribution maybe just 40 to 80 square miles. But the numerous scratch marks and dung suggested to Smith that it was amazingly common in that very small area, though. Okay, so the last two stories of the evening are both from the annual meeting of the Society for Neuroscience that took place at the beginning of November in San Diego. And frankly, both of these stories seem obvious when you are first presented with them, but it's nice to see that experimental science backs up what we think we already know instinctively. So the first of those stories out of the neuroscience conference says that the lack of sleep can induce anxiety. Yeah, I know. Like I said, I wasn't really surprised either. But in healthy adults, overnight sleep deprivation triggered anxiety the next morning, along with altered brain activity patterns. This work was done by doctors Ette Beth Simon and Matthew Walker of the University of California at Berkeley. This was reported on uh, November 4th. They said that people with anxiety disorders often have trouble sleeping. The new results uncover the reverse effect that poor sleep can induce anxiety. Sleep loss makes the anxiety worse, which in turn makes it harder to sleep. Ben Simon and Walker studied the anxiety levels of 18 healthy people. Following either a night of sleep or a night of staying awake, these people took anxiety tests the next morning. After sleep deprivation, anxiety levels in these healthy people were 30% higher than when they had slept. On average, the anxiety scores reached levels seen in people with anxiety disorders. What's more, sleep-deprived people's brains changed. In response to emotional videos, brain areas involved in emotions were more active, and the prefrontal cortex, an area that can put the brakes on anxiety, was less active. This was shown by functional MRI scans. Then Simon finished with, quote, Our results suggest that poor sleep is more than just a symptom of anxiety, and in some cases it may even be a cause, unquote. The other story from that neuroscience conference was that living on lonely street does more than make you lonely. It can actually affect the architecture of your brain for the worse. Dr. Richard Smain of Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia yanked mice out of their communities and held them in solitary isolation. Apparently, after enough time alone, they started to show signs of brain damage. After a month of being alone, the mice had smaller nerve cells in certain parts of their brains. Other brain changes followed. It's not known whether similar damage happens in the brains of isolated humans. If so, the results have implications for the health of people who spend much of their time alone, including the estimated tens of thousands of inmates in solitary confinement in the United States, and elderly people in institutionalized care facilities. Smain said that he and his colleagues raised communities of multiple generations of mice in large enclosures, packed with toys and mazes and things to climb. When some of the animals reached adulthood, they were taken out and put individually into typical shoebox cages, quote-unquote. That abrupt switch from a complex society to isolation induced changes in the brain. Smain and his colleagues later found the overall size of nerve cells or neurons had shrunk by 20% after that month of isolation. And that shrinkage held roughly steady over three months as the mice remained in isolation. And to the researcher's surprise, after a month of isolation, the mouse's neurons had a higher density of spines. Uh, Those are structures for making neural connections on the uh, message-receiving dendrites. An increase in spines is a change that usually signals something more positive. But Smain said, quote, it's almost as though the brain were trying to save itself, unquote. And that's because by three months, the density of those dendritic spines had decreased back to baseline levels, perhaps a sign that the brain couldn't save itself when faced with uh, continued isolation. The researchers uncovered other worrisome signals as well, including reductions in a protein called BDNF, which spurs neural growth. Levels of a stress hormone, cortisol, changed too. And compared with mice housed in groups, these isolated mice also had more broken DNA in their neurons, which amazed me when I read that. The researchers studied neurons in the sensory cortex, a brain area involved in taking information in, and the motor cortex, which helps to control movement. It's not known whether similar effects happen in other brain areas. It's also not known how the neural changes relate to the mouse's behavior. In people, long-term isolation can lead to depression, anxiety, psychosis, and their ability to think. Their brain power is affected as well. Isolated people develop problems in reasoning, remembering, navigating. Smain is conducting longer-term studies aimed at figuring out the effects of neuron shrinkage on thinking skills and behavior. He and his colleagues also plan to return isolated mice to their groups to see if the brain changes can be reversed. Those types of studies are important because he says, quote, the question is, when have the loneliness treatments gone so far that the brain cannot be saved? Unquote. It's a very sad question if it turns out that humans are prone to this brain degeneration as well. Well, that's all for me for now. Try not to be alone. Get plenty of sleep. Be on the lookout for vermicious knids in your trees. Keep watching the skies. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
1: James, James, what, James? What can I, what, what can I say that that's not already been said before by countless people? Jim, thank you so much. Well, that's it for today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. My, oh my, Mr. David Bart Yes, he is all getting ready for, ho, 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 our trees up. Oh, yes, it is. If you're not in the Christmas, I'm, I'm coming there with you. I'm coming over. Man, he's, just keen as out, me good wife. There for Christmas over here. Man, it's just, what? I'm sitting in a, window, Wonderland man already. Oh. And I have been for a couple of weeks. <laughs> right then, look after yourselves. Honestly, please, if you can, subscribe. That would be fantastic. And, you know, support one, Patreon. It would be an honour if you came over. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me.
0: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get much. I have barely left the ground. I'm tuning in your transmissions. I'm mooning, waiting to be found, and I'm. is going slowly, won't get to you anytime soon can you reach me is my signal getting through, turn on your radio I want to talk to you this signal's going light speed by the time I get my say I might already be over